Eric Roberts is a fucking man He's the greatest fucking actor since acting began We should give him every medal, every trophy and award He's the greatest fucking actor that you've ever seen or ever heard Mr. Owl Ate My Metal Worm is episode number 75 of Eric Roberts is the Fucking Man, the world's most bone-chilling Eric Roberts-related podcast. I'm Doug Tilly, and joining me as usual is my Joe Friday, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? I'm all right, Doug. How are you? You don't sound all right, Liam. You sound a little off, I would say. Well, this morning I was shaving my head. What? As I want to do. And I guess I was going a little too quickly. And I was trying to find the line on my head, and long story short, I shaved off part of my fingernail on my middle finger. Sorry, you shaved off part of your fingernail. My fingernail. Your fingernail? (laughs) (laughs) Your fingernail, Liam? (laughs) How the fuck did you do that? Well, I was shaving my head, and I guess I was going a little too fast. I was trying to find the line. You know, here's the thing. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you shave your head, you really have a very small visible area, and the rest of it is by feel. And I guess I was going fast. I was trying to find where I'd missed, and oh, man. I can't even talk about it, Doug, even though it happened to me, and I should be over it at this point. Just talking about it is freaking me out. It's it uh, it's very uncomfortable, and I don't like it, and it made me unhappy. So I feel like I've been in a bad mood about it all day, even though the rest of my day was actually fine. Like, work was fine. My kid is great. My wife is beautiful and wonderful. And I'm just sitting here going, my, my fingernail, god damn it. You know, Lee, we never really talked about this. What made you decide to shave your head? Well, that's a good question. Well, um, because this is a, a, a podcast for public consumption, mm-hmm. I'll simply say that I didn't want to go get my hair cut. So I, I have a barber, a dedicated barber, right. who I care about and I like to support. Uh, but he's in Philadelphia. And so the combo of scheduling time to drive down to Philly and then paying for the haircut and all that, it was just getting to be a bit much. And I just thought, I'm just going to shave my head. And how's that working out for you? Uh, good. It was a little awkward at first, but I've definitely gotten used to it. Um, there's a small part of me that thinks – why am I doing this when I have a full head of hair? Like, this is a movie yeah. make mm-hmm. when you're starting to go bald. Right. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I just dummy? decided to do it. Why did you do it, dummy? <laughs> well, you know why? there's people who go bald? Like, they go bald and you just decided. I mean, now it's starting to sound like a Seinfeld episode. But but really, how insulting to the men of the world who went bald. And, because I mean, at any – I could just change my mind and grow it back. It's fine. I can do whatever I want, Doug. It's my hair. Liam, this would normally be the part of the show where we would introduce our guest. And we do have a guest, Liam, but we're not going to introduce him. We're just going to talk about him for a second, Liam, because uh, this is a bit of a off-model episode. We're starting with just Liam and myself. But after the first break, we're going to come back and talk to someone. Liam, who are we going to talk to? We're going to talk to John Callis, director of No Solicitors, as well as director of Lone Wolf. And uh, uh, I, I guess... The entire run of the live action part of Bobby's World, which I had <laughs> no clue until uh, we talked to him. 
Liam, obviously doing a lot of his homework here for this episode of Eric Roberts is the fucking man. Yeah, John Callis, he directed the movie No Solicitors, which features Eric Roberts in a central role, as well as a lot of familiar names to fans of horror movies. He's had a long and distinguished career. He's worked with tons of musicians and music videos throughout the 1980s. He's worked on productions as varied as uh, From Raging Bull to The Happy Hooker Goes to Hollywood. Uh, I think he's a really interesting guy. And yeah, so after our first break, we'll come back. And you'll be able to listen to us talk to John Callis. But aside from that, Liam, we still have an episode to do. And we're going to structure this whole thing around that interview. But we've already done the interview. So we already know it's good. Right, Liam? It, it was really good, actually. It was really, really, really good. Oh, I Liam, mean, stop I, stop building it up. <laughs> I mean, I, I felt I felt really bad because you did most of the talking. So that means it's probably bad. But no, it actually was all right. I, uh, I did write down a lot of questions, Liam, out of fear that perhaps – you wouldn't watch the movie that he directed or uh, that you would not show up or that uh, you wouldn't have anything interesting to say or something like that. Well, that last one is impossible, but the first two were definitely impossible. I really <laughs> did was like, I'm just going to I'm just going to hit up Doug and be like, not tonight, man. I'm not into it. You know, I got stuff going on. I'm a busy guy. <laughs> I thought that I thought that was at least a possibility. If you do want to check out. No solicitors, and we'll reiterate this at the end of the episode. It's on Amazon Prime right now. That's where both Liam and I watched it. Uh, and uh, we had, a, I think, both of us had a good time, at least uh, if you're a fan of Eric Roberts or horror films, uh, it might be up your alley, worth checking out at the very least. But before we get into all of that, Liam, we need to check out the latest Eric Roberts news on The Roberts Report. It's the Roberts Report for episode number 75 of Eric Roberts is the fucking man. And as per usual, we start with a deep dive on the man himself's Twitter feed. You can follow Eric Roberts on Twitter at Eric Roberts, all one word. Back on May 15th, Liam, you'll find this interesting. (laughs) I'm so stoked. (laughs) Uh, Of course, Eric Roberts' stepson, uh, Keaton Simons, he wrote on Twitter, Hmm, am I going to get in trouble for this one? Ha ha. And what he's referring to is a picture that he posted, uh, Liam, and it says... A girl's favorite songs will tell you more about how she feels than her lips ever will. And Eric Roberts, he quote tweeted it and said, A person's favorite songs? A person's driving? What else can be unwittingly revealing? Liam, I want to throw that over to you. Sure. First, first, what this image says, which is that a, uh, a girl, I'm going to say a woman, I think it's a little bit more respectful, a woman's favorite songs will tell you more about how she feels than her lips ever will. Agree or disagree? I'm going to go ahead and disagree. Mm, mm, okay. Uh, because as far as I can tell, and to be fair, outside of my wife, uh, most women I interact with over social media because I work at a print shop. So um, there's literally one woman to eight men. Uh, but from what I can tell, uh, every woman who lives on planet Earth just listens to Cardi B all day long. So I don't know what I'm supposed to get about them from that. Um, if, if there are women who exist who don't listen to Cardi B, I don't know them. Uh, sorry, sorry I, I got a little something there. Is there something up with the Lehigh Valley uh, apparel hiring practices that we should be aware of? No, um, <laughs> I think it's really just the type of work, right? So, like, uh, there's really only one woman on staff, and she's doing, like, uh, art things, and huh. she's not out on the floor sweating. Today it was almost 100 degrees on the floor, even though it was only 70 degrees outside. And, uh, you know, for whatever reason, um, uh, 
the the people who are willing to sweat and feel like crap all day long are dudes. Mm. But, uh, you know, that's currently apparently in the past there have been uh, women who worked on the floor. Um, but I'm sure they regretted their decision uh, and went on to something smarter and less self-destroying. Uh, now, Liam, your wife, Susan, has been a guest on this program before. Yeah. What uh, what sort of music does she enjoy? I can't remember if we've ever talked about this before. Oh, um, well, she definitely um, – Does she like love punk music like you? No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. She was more of like a – uh, indie rock Coldplay person. Oh, I see. Um, and then she's come to like things like the Mountain Goats a lot, or um, some like R and B soul. <laughs> so you're saying that if there was a Mountain Goats themed cruise, that perhaps your wife would join you on it? <laughs> oh. oh, I would love a Mountain Goats themed cruise. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's good. I mean, I feel like it's she so does like-, like one punk band a lot, actually. Which band is that? Coxbar. Oh, I thought you were going to say some 41. <laughs> Aren't they Canadian? They are Canadian. Very good. There's only one good Canadian punk band. DOA. Oh, that's not true. There's two oh. good Canadian punk bands. Was was one of them DOA? <laughs> one, of, one of them is DOA. <laughs> I was referring to fucked up, and then I was like, oh, wait, DOA, you idiot. And I felt bad. Well, there you go. Two is not so bad. And also, if you are a member of a Canadian punk band, please message Liam and tell him what an asshole he is for for disrespecting our punk scene up here in Canada. I'm yeah. sure there's actually a lot of good Canadian punk bands, as long as they're not named uh, uh, Alexis on Fire or whatever that fucking band is. <laughs> I believe that was a screamo band, Liam. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm using punk in a larger sense of the word. Liam, a person's driving. How much does that tell you about them? Uh, that's interesting. It might tell you about someone's mood, like uh, in that moment. You know, if they're driving somewhat erratically, they might mm-hmm. be upset or something. Mm-hmm. But I don't know what it tells you about them beyond that. I'm, I'm actually. I mean, I guess what Eric is suggesting in this tweet is that like there are things people do that sort of reveal the things they're not saying. So that's like I'm saying mood, but I guess he's more thinking like emotions that you're trying to hide, but you whatever express that way. Um, I'm, you know, the my wife Susan. Um, she, her face tends to reveal a lot, whether she's wants to or not, she tends to get a look and I can kind of tell what she's thinking. Uh, I think for me, uh, that only happens when I'm very unhappy. Like for the right. most part, I'm pretty controlled and people don't necessarily know what I'm thinking, but when I'm like just in the worst possible mood, I try not to like, I try to smile. I try to stay upbeat, sure. but my face just gets this like, like just this like downward, whatever. And uh, the thing about that that's upsetting is that I think that's also my resting face. And now oh. like, that's also my baby's resting face. So sometimes I've taken pictures of my baby and realized like her resting face is as unhappy as my resting face. Oh my and it's really man. weird. Yeah. <laughs> we both look angry when we're just thinking. It's interesting. Uh, former guest of the show. My wife, Jill. My wife, Jill. My wife. <laughs> uh, this uh, this phrase about a woman's favorite songs tell you more about her, uh, th- how she feels, than her lips ever will. My wife will just tell me um, everything about her. <laughs> <laughs> Liam has met her, and also she doesn't listen to the show, so we can just be honest about it. My wife does not have a uh, a filter, nor should she. 
Uh, she is her own woman. And uh, and honestly, her openness is one of the things I love most about her. But uh, also, her favorite music is um, good for her. <laughs> but we don't share musical taste. Uh, I mean, there's not very much crossover. And it sounds like, in your case, I'm sure there is that kind of middle ground. But I think we all exist in that middle ground, don't you think, Liam? Well, I also don't like this stereotype of like, all women are just walking around hiding their true feelings and you have to like figure it out. I think mm-hmm. a lot of times men are just shitty at listening. Sure. So, like, in reality, a lot of, not all women, um, but I'm also being very heteronormative right now. Apologies for that. Yeah. But uh, not all people who might identify as women uh, uh, are bad at expressing themselves. I've known plenty of women who just tell you what they're thinking. And like you said, that, that they, um, they are unafraid to say what they're feeling. This idea that you have to decode it is more likely that the their partner, whatever gender they identify as, uh, might just be a bad listener <laughs> and not really open to hearing what it is that they're trying to tell them. Back on May 14th, Eric Roberts posted a photo of the a cover of the DVD for the movie Schlock, Liam, Schlock. And this is, uh, as the tweet mentions, an early John Landis movie which features... Eliza Roberts in it. So oh. I thought this would be a good opportunity, Liam, for us to talk about the work and life of John Landis. Oh, is, is it a good opportunity? <laughs> I don't think there's ever a bad time to talk about John Landis, Liam. In fact, I can't say that I've investigated his career very deeply, but I'm sure there's nothing troublesome that we'll experience <laughs> when we start to talk about it. <laughs> this is weird. This is weird timing because they just talked about uh, that particular incident on uh uh, friend of the show Scott Weinberg's podcast 80s all over they just covered uh what is it the um Twilight, Twilight Zone the movie it, yes yeah okay. they if, just covered it for those listening who don't know what we're talking about we apologize for being so cagey uh you might be aware that uh the movie Twilight Zone the movie came out in the ni- early 1980s and during the production of that movie uh, Vic Morrow and uh, two young actors uh were killed on set and there's been a lot of um, controversy about how much blame should be laid at the feet of director John Landis for um, having those actors work later than they were supposed to legally be working, that it was an unsafe working environment. Uh, and certainly some of the comments that he made during the trial w- did not sit right with a lot of people. I think that would be fair to say. Would that be, Liam? Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, it, it wasn't just him who was unsure of what was going to happen you know there was a time when the other people of the film were kind of out of the country as well but i think more than anyone else he has uh been given the public blame you know like i don't know that people are still bringing that up to spielberg or still bringing that up to any producers but john landis to this day can be in public and someone is going to ask him about vic morrow's death so he also, of course, gave birth to Max Landis. How do you feel about that, Liam? <laughs> the, the, the number the, – oh, I hate you, Doug, because I was so close to just making a number of inappropriate jokes about that. Let's just say I don't appreciate either of these events, and I'm unwilling to rank them as how much they make me unhappy. Okay. I will get you to rank however troublesome it might be. Now, in our conversation – uh, that you'll be hearing after the break. We do talk briefly about werewolf movies. Of course, one of the most famous and beloved werewolf movies is An American Werewolf in London, directed by John Landis. I would like you, Liam, to uh-huh. put on the record your top three John Landis movies. Well, that's um, 
a little difficult for me because I, outside of a uh, an American Werewolf in London, I'm not hugely familiar with John Landis movies. Well, let me throw a couple of names at you, Liam. Yeah, the Blues Brothers. Yeah, I mean that. Uh, okay, you, you, so I know American Werewolf in London. I know the Blues Brothers. Let me what throw else? another one at you. Yeah, Animal House. He directed Animal House. Absolutely. Oh, well then that's my top three right there. I mean those. Three. We're just getting started, Liam. Okay, keep going. What about Trading Places? I actually. So here's the thing. I should love Trading Places because it's like one of the Philly movies. It's mm-hmm. like you know, a big Philadelphia movie. And, you know, that's something I care about. Um, I don't think it sits as well as it did when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I loved it. And now I'm kind of like, it's fine. It's not great. It's fine. I want to say, by the way, these are all coming off the dome. The Kentucky Fried movie. Um, I loved it when I was a kid. It's a very uneven movie, I think. I bet if I watched it now, I wouldn't love it as much. When I was a kid, I thought it was the funniest thing that ever existed. Spies Like Us. I don't care about that. Coming to America. He directed Coming to America? Absolutely. Um, all right, give me a sec here. I think I bump out uh, Animal House and oh. replace it with Coming to America. Animal House has some very troublesome things in it if you were to watch it through modern eyes. Just going to throw a couple of, uh, more at you. At you. Uh, Beverly Hills Cop 3. Get fucked. No, thank you. <laughs> Innocent I, Blood. Side, side note, saw it in the theater. Still. <laughs> uh, yes, Innocent Blood. Did we watch that? No. What was that for? I wa- I've watched Innocent Blood before. And Eric, Eric Roberts is not in it, so we did not watch it. <laughs> oh, I thought maybe he was, but that's uh, okay. I'll give Innocent Blood this respect. Filmed in Pittsburgh. Oh. Possibly, possibly as a beginning of, uh, there was a moment. Uh, I believe it was Innocent Blood and maybe one other movie that people were like, you know what the new Hollywood is? Pittsburgh. We're going to film everything in Pittsburgh. And then that did not work out for any of them. Just going to finish off the John Landis train here, Liam, because I can just imagine how listening to this has been. The Stupids. No, I've never seen that. I don't care. It's pretty good. I like The Stupids. I think David Cronenberg shows up in The Stupids. Okay. (laughs) He also went on to do other things like a Don Rickles documentary. I think he made a documentary about used car salesmen as well. Uh, and uh, anyway, John Landis, murderer or no? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I want. I don't want to. I don't want to know if I want to say uh, murderer, but definitely someone who is struggling with mistakes he has made. Let's put it that way. That's fair enough. Max Landis, dick bag or no? Oh yeah, no. I have no respect for him whatsoever. Inferno by Dante fires up the Cannes Film Festival, Liam. Eric Roberts and over 30 celebrities and scholars join producer and director Boris Acosta to raise hell in Cannes. Now, uh, longtime listeners of the show may remember that we discussed, this was a very long time ago, an animated version of Dante's Inferno, Liam. So this has been in the works for years and years, apparently 10 years, Liam, to make an animated version of Dante's Dark Journey to Hell. And it has Franco Nero as the narrator of it. Uh, it's It seems like this is a massive production. Uh, and one of the people involved, Liam, is Eric Roberts. Does this uh, hold any interest to you? It sounds like quite a production. Yeah, I'm kind of hit or miss with the animation, though. It really depends on the style. Absolutely. Like, if it's It could be directed and edited brilliantly, but if for whatever reason the style of animation is aesthetically off-putting, I might not be into it. 
I think that's pretty reasonable. Um, visually, Inferno by Dante features over 300 paintings and illustrations of international artists. In addition, it features a new repainted 75-piece art collection by Dino de Durante, the never-seen-before remake from his earlier 70s. What is this, Liam? <laughs> what is this production? I don't fucking know. Anyway, keep your eyes out for um, this trilogy of movies, perhaps. It's a very confusing uh, piece of, of, uh, of uh, promotion that we're reading here. But uh, I guess, yeah, Inferno by Dante. Keep your eyes out for it. It's lighting Ken, Liam, on fire. On fire. You know, Liam, speaking of movie festivals, uh, the Cinepocalypse Festival, which both you and I attended last year, as of today, the day that we're recording this, they just announced their lineup for uh, for their uh, next festival, which takes place in late June. Yeah, they did. It's pretty exciting. Uh, I haven't gone deep on it. I just did, gave it a quick perusal and got pretty excited. I'm really hoping to go. I don't know if that's going to work out, but that's that's what I'm hoping for. That 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 is exactly my own feelings. I'm hoping to go, and I'll try to uh, to make that a little more solid by the end of this month. Um, but uh, it, it's a great looking lineup. Friend of the show, Scott Weinberg, him and uh, Drew McWeenie, of course, their '80s All Over podcast, which I think you just re- referenced a little bit ago, Liam. They're doing a live taping with uh, comedian and Mystery Science Theater 3000 star Jonah Ray. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Totally. So you know we'll. Badger the two of them to let allow us to meet Jonah Ray. Yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> wow, Liam, you couldn't give less of a shit about that. <laughs> I mean, no, no, Jonah seems cool. I mean, my my experience of uh, Jonah Ray was like, um, I should be excited that Jonah Ray likes Chain of Strength or something like that. Like, what's this? that's what too obscure a reference? But ba- basically, Jonah Ray is that music. Some- Jonah Ray likes some bands that are considered cool in my world, oh, and I'm supposed to be hell. and I'm supposed to be stoked about that. And for me, it's like, yeah, he's the guy who uh, sometimes co-hosts Chris Hardwick's podcast, right? Yeah, that's about all I know. That's that's like the extent. Now, don't be wrong. I got stoked on him when I watched Mystery Science Theater, and I thought he did a good job on that. But that's still not a huge thing for me to connect with. He sometimes co-hosts a podcast with Chris Hardwick. And he did Mystery Science Theater. So, like, it'd be cool to meet him. He seems like a nice guy. I'd love to be on Joe Radio just because I like music and I that part of the show I think is cool. But he's not someone that I'm like, oh, man, he's, like, the best dude. I, I need to, like, really get to know him. It's just a guy who seems nice. Liam poo-pooing Jonah Ray here for really no reason at all. You really can't say I'm poo-pooing. That's ridiculous. Well, you 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 brought up this band that apparently exists that you both enjoy, and you then you what? were like, "But I don't want to you know like what? him just because he likes this band I like." No, come on, come on. We're being unfair right now. Who am I being unfair to? Me all okay. the time. That's the whole premise of this show. <laughs> yes, that that's correct. <laughs> Liam. Recently added to the ever-expanding Eric Roberts IMDb page is 2017's Football Texas, which is apparently a four-episode web series, which was put out, which was put out by the website BleacherReport.com. Uh, I believe at least one of these are on YouTube. I haven't checked it out yet. The plot is in Football Texas, throwing around the pigskin isn't just a game, and this apparently features Eric Roberts as a character named Coach Walker, Liam. How do you feel about football? I don't, you're not really a sports guy, right? No, I mean, I actually find football 
probably more watchable than other people who generally hate sports. Um, but my animosity towards sports is more because it's such like a mammoth cultural juggernaut, you know, like I don't like the, the wake that it leaves in our cultural uh, milieu. Um, the thing itself, a bunch of dudes running into each other for my amusement. That's fine. I guess it's okay. Uh, I'm concerned for their brain injuries, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. other than that, it's like, it's not boring. I don't actually think a football game is boring, but I just, I, I've never been someone who can figure out how to care about sports beyond like watching a game. And I'd rather watch, I mean, if I have the choice, if I'm going to sit in front of a TV and watch sports or go to like a live event, of course I'd want to go to a live event, even if it's not a pro sure. event, mm-hmm. being in a crowd of people is cool. Like that part I like. Um, but it, it's certainly more watchable for me than like golf or basketball or whatever. Like those things I, I can't get into. I think that's fair enough. I think a lot of it has to do with the personalities of the people that are on the team and feeling a connection, whether it be because you live in the city or because you've decided to feel that connection. I mean, it's there's, I think there's a lot of elements that come into play. But I think a lot of it is also that once you've dedicated enough time and mental effort towards a, a sport or really anything, then it becomes more than yourself, right? It's just like I almost have – you feel a compulsion to follow and be kind of emotionally involved with something. Yeah, I mean I think it's exciting for people. Um, I, I guess uh, – honestly, I think a lot of it, once you get past the game itself and you really get into the theory and the ideas and the strategy and all the statistics and stuff, it's oh, yeah. just like it's just like D&D. Absolutely. It's, it's literally the same impulse – that got me into comic books to get someone else into whatever games, nerdy things or whatever. I just think a certain kind of sports fandom is just a nerdiness that people feel less insecure about. They feel less like, oh, I should feel bad about doing this. But it's the same obsessive interest as anything else. Liam, will you be checking out 2017's Football Texas? Well, I got this motherfucking blood oath, so yeah, I guess I will. I share that blood oath with you. Yeah, you do. Liam and I made a blood oath to cover the life and work of actor Eric Roberts. So, yes, we'll both be checking out 2017's Football Texas at some point. But, yeah, after that very short (laughs) Roberts report, it's time for us to take our first break. When we return, we're going to talk to director John Callis about his movie No Solicitors from the year 2015. Just going to throw out the uh, plot summary written by John himself on IMDb. Lewis Cutterman is a well-respected brain surgeon and happily married with two beautiful children who run the family business. They are model citizens within the community. A simple visit to their home by a solicitor is greeted by an invitation to dinner, except dinner takes a macabre turn when the solicitor finds himself drugged by the family. Waking up, the solicitor soon discovers they will be slowly eaten piece by piece and that the kid's family business is to farm out their internal organs to needy patients. It's no solicitors from the year 2015. We're going to talk about it with the director right after this. Well, he went down to dinner in his Sunday best. Of a boy, they all said. And he propped the pot roast all over his chest. Excitable boy, they all said. Well, he's just an excitable boy. He took in the 4 a.m. show at the Clark. Excitable 
excitable boy, they all said And he fit the assurance, leg in the dark And we're back on Eric Roberts is the fucking man talking to uh, No Solicitors director John Callis, uh, r- the writer and director of the film. John, thank you so much for joining us today. John, of course, has had a lengthy career in the visual arts. Uh, we're going to go over some of those uh, highlights and, well, I wouldn't say lowlights, but I guess we're going to get your perspective on that, John. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. I appreciate you both having me on, Liam and Doug. Uh, it's, it's an honor to be here. Well, we appreciate that very much, John, and we know that you're a very busy man, so we won't take up too much of your time. But I did want to start, John, simply because it's been in the news over the last couple of days. There's uh, There's been some talk that uh, Howie Mandel is looking to bring Bobby's World back to television. Now, you worked on Bobby's World for a number of years. If I, I might be incorrect here, but you directed the live action segments of the show. Is that correct? I di- directed all 80 episodes of the live action. Right. And so there's been a little talk of the possibility of that show returning. Do, do you have any insight on that? Would you be interested at all to, about returning to something like that? I wouldn't hesitate for a second. I loved working with Film Roman, the whole team over there, Gary Conrad, and especially Howie. He was absolutely a delight to work with. I, I, I believe Howie Mandel is Canadian. I'm going to take some credit uh, as a fellow <laughs> Canadian. <laughs> Wait, is this a promotion for you, or is it for uh, no solicitors? John, I, I hate to say it, but everything is a promotion for me. <laughs> Good one. Uh, you yeah, have... I would, I'd be very interested in, in uh, working on the show again. Have you heard anything along those lines? I'm sure it's very much in the early stages of talks, but I was certainly happy to hear it. I, I mean, uh, Bobby's World was a certainly a favorite of mine while it was on the air. Well, honestly, I haven't heard much. I, I mean, I've heard the sneaking rumors, too, but um, mm-hmm. I, I really should uh, give them a call and see what's going on. What was working with Howie Mandel like on a sort of a day-to-day basis? I mean, obviously, he's been very open about his uh, his OCD and, and things along those lines. Was it ever a difficulty when it came to, to filming on that show? You know, I've read that, and I've read that he's germaphobic. I've read all these um, things about Howie. I can only tell you that he and I got on like a house on fire. He came to me. We sat down. We went over the day's work. Um, I explained every shot we were going to do, and he said, okay, let's do it. And we jumped in. Um, Very easy to direct. I mean, how do you direct Howie Mandel? You just say, here's the camera. Let's go. Um, You know, of course, I kept his eye line straight for, for the animation purposes and all that, but... I found him a complete um, professional actor. Uh, he engaged with the crew. It wasn't any like I'm a star. Everyone bow down or any of that nonsense that went on. And uh, uh, yeah, he was just great. Um, we got a shot with our arms around each other. So if the germophobia happened after that, I'm happy that I got to hold it for a second. <laughs> uh, Liam, by the way, Liam, if you have any questions, please jump in. I don't want to feel like I'm stepping all over you here. No, 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 no. I have uh, a few as well, but you keep going because I also love Bobby's World and <laughs> I had no idea. Everything you're saying about them possibly doing it again is like complete news to me. <laughs> I like I like surprising you as much as the guest, Liam. That's part <laughs> of what I like to do. Here. I didn't know. I you know I didn't. I don't. I'm not. I'm not up to date on my Howie Mandel breaking news. <laughs> I need to set up my Google alert so I know what's going on. It's front page news up here in Canada. We we like to keep up on these things. Well, he is Canadian, so that makes sense. Uh, hey, there's not many of us out there, so we really want to keep tabs on the ones that are doing well. Uh, gotcha. 
John, we interviewed a director named uh, Jack Perez uh, a while back, a really wonderful director. He directed an Eric Roberts movie called La Cucaracha a few years back. He also directed a movie called Some Guy Who Kills People with Kevin Corrigan, uh, which I really love. Really great uh, dark comedy. Actually, uh, similarly dark to no solicitors in some ways. But he had told us um, about working with Adam West. Now, I don't know how much you were able to work with Adam West early in your career when you worked on The Happy Hooker Goes Hollywood, but I, I, I knew that you, at least according to your bio, you worked on that set. Did you have any contact with Adam West? Very much so. I was uh, with him almost every day. Do you have any Adam West stories to share? Well, before he came on the set, uh, we were instructed by the higher-ups, we'll call them, uh, that there would be no Batman jokes. <laughs> mm. So we all looked, and of course they all looked at me and said, what do we do? I said, you heard the man, no Batman jokes. Make Robin jokes, what can I tell you? So he came on, we were all talking, and something came up where he looked around and he goes, but where's Robin? And the whole place <laughs> cracked up. <laughs> and then somebody in the background started going, <laughs> he did a little twirl and went, Batman. <laughs> So he was he was a very cool guy. I mean, I had no problem with him. Now you've wor- worked in a lot of different aspects of uh, of the kind of visual arts, uh, John. I know that you've worked on a number of music videos, including kind of a lot of of uh, formative music videos in kind of the early days of the form. Uh, I know that you worked on. Uh, now I don't know what capacity you necessarily worked on these uh, the the ones that were listed that I read, but I know that okay. you worked on the Gap Band's "You Dropped a Bomb on Me." Uh, which I love that music video. <laughs> but I'm just wondering, since you probably were able to see right from the early days of the music video popularity and see it kind of explode, what was it like being in the midst of that? Well, I'll be honest with you, I did the um, first uplink for MTV ever uh, for the Go-Go's. Hmm. And they gave me this, these two boxes, these blue T-shirts that had MTV written all over it. They said, pass it out to your crew. So my production manager came up, he looked at him and goes, do you think they're as ugly as I think? I said, yeah, let's toss them. Now they'd be worth a fortune, of course. But um, it, it, was, uh, it was a very interesting experience when we first started out because the record industry came to guys like me um, to help guide them. And they were pretty much willing to listen to what production had to do and the expenses that went into it. As they became more educated, the budgets became less and less, and their input became more and more. So this beautiful thoroughbred slowly turned into a two-hump camel. Um, but in the beginning, it was absolutely a, a, a fun, uh, riotous kind of thing, because you're dealing with rock and roll people that are pretty yes. high-end, and mm-hmm. they're used to like just being out of control. And... Um, you know, fortunately, I, I'm a musician, so I could talk their talk with them. And mm-hmm. I, I always managed to get them on set on time and working with us and doing a great job. And uh, it was a really, really great experience. It was, in, I guess, in my opinion, it was a filmmaker's dream come true because you had enough money, not tons of it, but enough to do mm-hmm. the projects correctly, take care of the crew so nobody was crying that the, the hours are bad or anything. And yet it was, it was new ground to break. So everything was a new discovery. How are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? How do you sync the music to lip? You know, m- most people think you just turn on the record player and go. But there's a right. whole technology behind transferring the song to a sync mark so that it would work with cameras. Now, back in the day, remember, I started out where it was black and white and it turned to color. Right. And then it went into the digital world. So we were shooting all of this stuff on film 
and then having to transfer it and then work on um, you know flatbeds and things like that. So it came out of a whole different genre of what can be done today with digital. Uh, so we had uh, a, a lot heavier crews, a lot more lighting, a lot more you know uh, technical issues to deal with, but it was a ball doing it. It was just great. <laughs> do, do you have any any particular favorites that you worked on? Wow. Uh, well, Glenn Fry, uh, Smuggler's Blues, I really have a, a very soft spot in my heart for because uh, the second year of MTV Awards, we won Best Concept of the Year for that show, uh, for that music video. Um, the other one was the Sticks concert because I actually helped pioneer a technology that's easily done today. But they came to me and said, look, we want to film the Sticks concert in Atlanta, Georgia. I said, no problem. Uh, well, there is a problem. I said, what's the problem? They said, we want to do it while it's live, actually performing in front of an audience. Right. And you can't exactly run across the stage and slap the clapper to, to do the sound um, sync mark with the visual. So how do you manage to shoot with eight film cameras? Now, we're talking film, remember, not digital. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, eight film cameras running for three hours and not run out of film. So the, the logistics was a nightmare. I flew... Eight different states worth of um, uh, film cameras to our set, because that's how many um, magazines I needed. I had two assistants per station, which made it 16 assistants, because one would be downloading the film, running it to the, to the uh, back room to reload it, while another guy was bringing a full magazine to the cameraman. And this went on for three hours. So any, any uh, slip-up, and we lost the shoot. We shot over a million feet of 16-millimeter film on that shoot. So that was pretty cool. Um, Jefferson's our ship, the Grace Slick, and mm -hmm. I just, <laughs> I don't know what it was. We just got on so well, and she would come over and hug me, and everyone's going, what do you do that she wants to hug you? <laughs> <laughs> I saw the photo on your website. Yeah, it, it, I was like, boy, th those two obviously got along. Oh, we were just having a ball with each other. And, of course, she came up. She goes, got a problem. I said, what's that? I said, the boys in the back don't want to come out. I said, meaning? They don't want to come out. I said, okay. So I went back there, and once I managed to get through the smoke, um, I said, okay, who's sitting where? So I sat next to Yorma Kakan, and I said, look, guys, we got a shoot to do. And they go, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, why don't we just um, step out on the stage and warm up with a little song? And so I got them on the stage, and Grace got them talking, and next thing we know, we were shooting. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, uh, Real Men Don't Kill Coyotes was their first um, music video. Mm -hmm. So it was exciting to see us do something from a band that was fairly unknown to something that became a monumental uh, act. Doobie Brothers, I did a 12-camera concert shoot outdoors with them, went to a lot of their rehearsals, and it, you know they'd, they'd be practicing, and they'd stop and say, no, you've got to switch over. And I'm thinking, why did you stop? It sounded great. You know, <laughs> Keep playing. <laughs> Um, but they they were all pretty cool guys too. Uh, you know, John, considering one. you have an interest in, like, obviously a deep interest in music, and you've worked with a lot of musicians, I'm just wondering, do you have a philosophy about what makes a good concert film? I mean, there's of course some amazing ones. There's the Last Waltz and Stop Making Sense and all that sort of thing. What what separates a good concert shoot from a bad one? Uh, this is an opinion. I think they've gotten cut crazy, where everything has to be cut, 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 mm, cut, cut, mm -hmm. cut, cut, cut. It's, uh, it goes back to the old days of filmmaking back in the 30s and 40s when there were dancers. 
they didn't cut in on the dancer's face. They always did it a wide shot so you could see their feet moving. Sure. Because if they're dancing, guess what you really want to watch is the feet, mm -hmm. not the head. So if you take that page out of history and you start applying it to a concert, I'm not suggesting a wide shot, but what I am saying is when you come in, let, let's have something that builds a, an energy for the song itself as opposed to cut the camera to, we've got a close-up of this guy, we've got a close-up of that, bring, you know, pan left, right, and all that stuff. So what you're trying to do is you want to find the essence and the spirit of the music and see if you can apply the, the movement of the camera to it without uh, jiggling it so much that the camera becomes the performance instead of the performers. And that's what I would shoot for. I mean, it makes total sense. I mean, if you're watching a concert film, you think that you are interested in the band enough to want to appreciate all those details. And uh, yeah, no, I've, I've noticed exactly the same thing. Uh, just the, the, the fast cutting that makes it very difficult to appreciate, especially when there's, there's you know, a lot of musicianship that you really want to take in while you're watching. Well, you watch Jimmy Page play guitar. I, I, I don't want to see like him sweating, you know, from and making his face. I want to see his fingers on the guitar, seeing what he's doing, because that's yeah. just magic, you know. So that's what I would do. Now you have again, you've worked in uh, a lot of different areas of film and uh, and obviously video and music videos, but your two feature films are both horror films, or I guess variations on horror films, I should say. Have you always had an interest in horror, or did it just happen to be that these projects came together? Is it something that you've been passionate about uh, for a long time? Well, I, I love horror, first of all. I, th I think there's a place for every genre. Um, I, I guess if you want a little background on No Solicitors, I can tell you how that came about real quick. Sure, please. Okay. I have a sign on my door, over my doorbell, that says No Solicitors. And real estate agents keep knocking on the door, and I keep chasing them off the property with a baseball bat. And <laughs> And so one day, I'm having lunch with my friend at Warner Brothers, and he says, you seem really pissed off today. I said, you know, I can't, I can't help it. That these freaking idiots keep ringing the doorbell. I say, what do you do? Can't you read English? It says no soliciting, which means I don't want to be bothered by people like you. And one of them said, I'm not soliciting. I said, so you want to list my house, sell it, and you're not going to charge anything? He goes, well, no, I make a commission. I said, Dan, you're a solicitor. Get off my property. So he left, and I, t I told my friend that, and he goes, well, why don't you write a horror movie and kill them? <laughs> That's a great idea. <laughs> so I sat down and wrote it, and then I went out and got it financed. And um, I'm very collaborative on the script, so I gave it to my crew, uh, which most directors and writers will not do. And I said, have a look at this. I want everyone to understand what we're doing, where we're heading. If you see anything that doesn't make sense, let me know. And my script supervisor came up to me and says, do you really want input? I said, yeah, why? She goes, I have a really uh, interesting suggestion. I said, what? She goes, the way it is right now, you're giving away everything up front, and there's nothing to discover. Why don't you hold back one element or the other to later on and then get it exposed? And I thought about it. I said, that's brilliant. So I went back that night and rewrote it and moved stuff around. And, uh, and then other people would come to me, and then the actors started coming to me. And before long, <laughs> uh, you know, we had, a, I thought, a pretty tight script and things that the actors felt comfortable doing. Jumping back a little bit before we focus a bit heavier on No Solicitors, uh, your film Lone Wolf from 1988, um, I, I remember watching that back in the 1990s. It's a little bit more difficult to track down now. Has there been um, any potential for that getting a, a, maybe a, a, a wider release? I think the, the only way you can really find it right now is like on illegal bootlegs on YouTube, things like that. Yeah, I have a feeling that's probably what's going to happen. It went worldwide to the point a friend of mine called me from Germany. He goes, here, listen to this. 
And I'm listening, it's going, Das Fleischen, I said, what the hell are you watching? He goes, Lone Wolf and I said, you got to be kidding me. So it did get a good wide, worldwide release on it. Um, I have two VHS tapes of it. <laughs> that's that's all I I know that's floating out there. <laughs> can can I? Yeah, please. Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask one um, in relation to Lone Wolf. You know, you've worked so much with bands doing music videos and Lone Wolf being a story about, you know, sort of that scene and that world. Was that part of wanting to do that particular story? Like, did that play off of it at all? Uh, and then the other question I had is just doing a werewolf movie. Like, I don't know. I always, I always find werewolf movies, you're taking a risk because if you don't sell the werewolf, then the movie has trouble working. You know what I mean? Like it's such Absolutely. a. It's like, is this going to work or not? Is are people going to be into the? Because, anyways, those are the, those are the two things I was thinking about. Well, I think you're hitting on a really interesting point because, uh, again, back then there was no digital, so all of the effects that you saw, some of them mm-hmm. we actually did uh, by pack mats in the camera itself. We would notch the film and then oh. rewind it, shoot a double exposure. So if yeah. you screwed that up, you screwed up the whole day's worth of work. Um, uh, all the effects were done um, pretty much live, which is very... It, by today's standards, you don't do it. You just do CGI and walk away from it. Mm. Um, to your point about the wolf, I had some issues with it initially, but they got resolved because the actor put the wolf uh, costume on. I said, <laughs> all right, now I need you to run across that field and chase the girl. He goes, I'd love to, but I can't. I said, why not? He says, because I can't see out this mask. There's no hole. <laughs> I said, well, that doesn't work now, does it? <laughs> so the effects team had to cut out a little eye holes and then put some patches on it so you wouldn't see in, in the wolf's uh, thing. But that was, I, I admit, that was very challenging. Um, it, it was uh, done on a major shoestring budget. I mean, sure. I wish I had a shoestring. That's a, to give you an example of how low budget it was, the DP takes me for a walk and goes, all right, now we're in the woods here. What do you want to see? I said, I'd like to see the shaft of light here. I want to see the shadow. I want to see the wolf come out of here. I want to see these guys. And you kind of like this. You got to like that. And he puts his arm around me and goes, you know what you just said? I said, yeah. He goes, these are brilliant ideas. I said, thanks. He goes, I got two lights and one's out. What do you want to do? <laughs> <laughs> I said, I'll point it that direction. We'll go. He goes, great. And off we went. <laughs> Before we, we uh, again, I, we'll talk about no solicitors right after this question, but I just wanted to ask you, and I apologize if this doesn't, if this isn't connected to any particularly positive memories, but despite its shaky reputation, I was wondering if you had any memories of working with Wes Craven on The Hills Have Eyes too. Well, you know, it's, that's another good point. Um, Wes invited me over to his house, and he said, I'd like to go through the script with you. I said, be more than happy to. So we sat there for three days going through every ounce of that script, and I kept drilling him. I said, Wes, if we do that, what about this? And he said, okay, we can do that, and we did this. I found him incredibly easy. I don't know what stories are floating out there about the guy, but... Um, oh, I, 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 I certainly didn't mean to suggest that. In fact, I think he has a pretty sterling reputation, but I know that the the the, the critical response to the movie probably wasn't as positive as probably either of you had hoped. It, it was not. There's no question it was not. Um, it... Um, what can I say? It didn't float. I mean, not every film's going to make it, though, unfortunately. Uh, I have a soft spot in my heart, and I actually have worked with some of those actors since then that mm. were on that same shoot. Um, just a, a side story about Wes. Where we were sitting in the dining room one night, and the, the DP, David Lewis, and I were sitting next to each other, and he's sitting across, and he made the mistake of just flinging a pee at David. 
And Dave and I looked at each other, and it was just like Animal House. He screamed, food fight, <laughs> place of rough. So we were banned from using that room anymore because there was syrup on the walls. We were all covered in every piece of food you can imagine. So that, um, that was fun. I mean, Wes had a lot of fun doing that. Uh, now, now uh, focusing a little bit more on No Solicitors, it, it's a kind of film that walks a kind of a difficult line between comedy and horror. Uh, it's, it can be probably a bit of a risk to lean one way or the other. Was there a concern when you were writing it or perhaps when you were filming it that the Cutterman family were being made too sympathetic? I mean, certainly in the, the attempted rape scene, the, that, you know, you, you're, I think the audience is all in with the Cutterman family. Uh, or, or was there little concern? Were you okay with audience members being like, yeah, back these guys. They may be cannibals, but at least they're targeting the right people. Well, I, I started out wanting it to, to feel like something that was very different. I looked at a lot of horror films and said, what's the, the through line here? And there was a definite through line that I discovered. I said, now, how do I take that and, and within the genre, try something a little bit more daring and maybe a little bit different instead of one guy chasing half-naked women through the woods with an axe? Let's come up with something different. And I said, what would be really horrific would be a, a, a Norman Rockwell kind of family that looks beautiful, looks normal, but there's a really dark side to them. So I, I said, if horror is going to work, you have to poke a little humor into it. And mm-hmm. as I wrote it, I poked a little humor and I poked a lot of consumerism and satire in it. Um, now, did I know it was going to work? No. Was I hoping <laughs> it would work? Yes. I, I discovered later on there was more humor than I had actually thought it was in there, which was even more interesting. Um, and I'll very briefly, um, when we had our first table read before I cast anyone, um, the two leads, the brother and sister, Jason and Kim, were sitting at the other end of the table. And right before we began, Kim said, um, can I ask you a question? I said, of course. And everyone in the room's looking, and, and she goes, the brother and sister? I said, yeah. And she goes, they're screwing, aren't they? <laughs> well, the whole table went crazy. <laughs> and I looked, and I went, uh, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> I said, did you intend that? I said, not really. <laughs> it wasn't my intention. Uh, they said, but it's there, isn't it? I said, you know, you're right, it is. Now, for me as the director, the challenge became this. Now that that was out on the table, the tendency for actors is to play the effect, meaning that they would like start becoming incestuous on screen. So I had to find what the, the scene intention was and let it play out so the audience can make the determination whether or not they were shagging each other. Um, what's interesting is on the next one that I'm, I'm writing sort of like a prequel sequel kind of together, mm-hmm. which has never been done, <laughs> uh, we discover how all of that came about and who these cuttermen were and where it came from, which I think is really cool. So I'm, I'm sorry, I hope I answered your question. No, absolutely. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because while watching it, you know, they're, they're kind of a fully formed family already. And, and, and so often with prequels, you're like, well, do I really want to understand their motivation? In this case, I'm like, you know what? I'd like to explore that. I want to know how this family decided to get into this line of work, let's say. Liam, I don't know about you, but uh, watching No Solicitors reminded me a little bit of Bob Balaban's film Parents. Huh. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. But, yeah, definitely. Well, I'll have to look at that again. I think it's it was really funny um, when I was sitting in a screening room uh, in a festival. Uh, there was a lot of laughs, which I was excited about. I was happy, and then of sure. course in the 
in the rape scene, there was a lot of, ooh, ah, ooh, ouch, ooh, kind of stuff. <laughs> and this kid sitting next to me is laughing, and he's having a great time with the film. He looks at me and goes, hey, did you write this? I said, yeah, why? He goes, you're sick. And he kept back <laughs> to the film. I said, I, I guess that's a compliment. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, horror fans are a unique breed. That's certainly something. <laughs> they certainly are. You got to love them. Now, speaking of horror, there are a lot of familiar faces to fans of horror films in No Solicitors. Uh, the one that jumped out to me, because it was a little bit surprising, was Beverly Randolph, who plays the matriarch of the Cutterman family in the movie. Now, my understanding, I, I, I really haven't seen her in anything since Return of the Living Dead, and I'm a big fan of her performance in that. How did she end up being in the movie? Uh, and uh, how did, how did, was, was it a, a person that you actually had to seek out, or did she come to you? Um, Felissa Rose, who is in the film, mm -hmm. um, does a lot of horror movies. <laughs> and uh, when I told her about this, she said, well, go ahead and write it, and, and I'll help you produce it if you want. I said, great, let's do it. And she brought most of the cast to the reading, and most of the cast at that reading were actually cast from that reading. It wasn't an audition, but uh, in my mind, I had cast Beverly the minute she opened her mouth. That sweet little voice, I said, oh, this is, this is Rachel all over the place. So she won my heart right from, from the start. So it, she was brought to me. The people that Felicia didn't bring was Lucy Walsh, who played Mindy, the real estate agent. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's interesting to know is Lucy, her father is Joe Walsh of the Eagles. <laughs> what? Yeah. So next time you see it, that's Joe Walsh's daughter. And and the detective was brought by my friend Robbie Patton, who's a, 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 a twelve-time platinum album music guy. Uh, he lived with us for many years, and um, he said, "I know a guy that'd be really good for the detective." I said, "Bring him in for an audition." He walked in the audition. I gave him the part right there. I didn't even finish the audition. <laughs> Um, so that, that's uh, those were the things that happened on cast. It, it's it must be so difficult when you have to cast a family like this that are 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 both supposed to be uh, very warm and giving to each other, but can also exude menace. Uh, and and that's why I think that that Beverly her performance is so strong because she doesn't like she doesn't push towards the menacing aspect of it in every way, except for the fact that her family are cannibals and murderers. You know, she's she exudes this kind of perfect mother, uh, almost Ozzy and Harriet uh, style. So, yeah, I really do love that performance. I really feel like she, she's kind of the, the all-star of that group because of the tone she brings to it. There's something interesting about what you just said, because I really liked how she played it to, to underplay any of the horror, because I think that's what scares the crap out of you. There's a scene most people haven't caught yet, then, and I'll share with you, because people go mm -hmm. back and look at the film and figure it out, is at one point she's talking about the fact that we don't use foul language in this house. It says, just remember what happened to your brother, may his Right, brother. right. And I'm thinking, when I wrote that, I thought, oh shit, they killed and ate the brother, because he was cursing. <laughs> So, I don't know how many people caught that, but there's a lot of little sick shit like that in there. <laughs> <laughs> now, the the gag reel at the end of the movie suggests that uh, that it was a pretty fun set to to work on. For you, was it a pleasant shoot or was it uh, pretty stressful? I imagine that you know you weren't working with the largest budget in the world, but it, was it was it a pretty relaxed for you? I found the set to be very happy. There were a couple of tense moments when, you know, some of the effects, which is not a, uh, a science, you know, it's not an exact sure. science, weren't going exactly how I wanted it. You know, I may have thrown a temper tantrum here and there. 
Um, but other than that, I think that the set was a very happy place. Uh, I like to keep my sets happy. When problems came up, I didn't start pointing fingers. And when people started that, I said, stop that shit right now. I don't care who's at fault. That's the, we're not going to play the blame game. What we are right now is wasting time and money. So what I need to know is how do we resolve the problem? And everyone would calm down and say, oh, okay, so I'm not going to get my ass handed to it because I fucked up. I, you know, I'll just have to make up for this somehow. And everyone pulled their weight, and, you know, people were coming and saying, hey, John, uh, I, I, I'm supposed to have this thing here in 10 minutes. It's going to take 15. So I said, thank you for letting me know, and we shot something else while that got set up. So as long as I had the information, which my crew learned, if they gave me the information, I could deal with it, make adjustments. My AD and I have been together for God knows how many years, and he managed to run the set really well. And it, it was just a happy place to be, which is nice for a horror film. <laughs> um, now, you obviously have never stopped working. You have so much material out there. But there was that kind of a large gap between Lone Wolf and No Solicitors. What were some of the major differences between making a low-budget horror movie in 1988 and making one in uh, the, <laughs> the recent 2000s? Well, a couple things. The fans have changed, and their taste has gotten sophisticated, so I felt you really needed to present things in front of them that you don't insult them. You know, right. you have to give them something they're going to really enjoy. The second, and I think the most monumental part, was going from the film world to the digital world. Mm. Uh, it, it, the, the, the way you could move so fast with digital and need such little light just blew my mind. I turned to the DVS, <laughs> so what do you need, like an hour to light? And he goes, oh, no, we're ready. <laughs> I said, you got, you got three lights up. What are you talking about? We can afford another one, you know. He said, no, look in the monitor to see if you don't like something. So I looked, I said, holy shit, really? He goes, yeah, and in post we can do whatever we want. So that was, that was the big factor for me. I mean, I'm in love with digital. I, I, sure. I love that stuff. Although I do think that there's two distinctions in digital versus film. If I'm going to do a love story or something like that, I, I would opt and I would fight for shooting it on film because there's a warmth to film that sure. digital of doesn't course. have yet. You can filter it, but it still doesn't have that grain quality and stuff. Uh, if you're going to do a fast, high-action adventure movie, give me digital anytime. Uh, it just works much better. So I think you have to apply the technology to the subject you're dealing with. But I think that's the main difference is that the crews are smaller. Um, they, they run faster. It's easier. The equipment's lighter. I mean, we had most of the camera on a jib arm the whole shoot so we could move around real quickly. Um, so that, that was it. How long did it take to shoot No Solicitors? You know, I'm trying to remember. I think, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken, it was either 12 or 15 days. Wow. Amazing. Liam, yeah, do you have any, any, anything to jump in with here? Um, well, most of my questions were going to relate to just, you know, the experience of working with Eric Roberts. So I don't want to, I don't <laughs> well, want to jump, I don't want to jump the gun if you're not ready for that. No, that's exactly where I was going to head into. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it first, Liam, and then you jump in with anything following up. How do you feel about that? Sounds good to me. <laughs> so the question is, uh, tell us about working with Eric Roberts. You know, Liam and I last year, uh, we went to the Cinepocalypse Film Festival in Chicago, and we interviewed Eric Roberts live on stage in front of a, a really appreciative crowd. It was our first time, even though this is an Eric Roberts-related podcast, it was our first time actually meeting him. It was obviously very exciting. We were able to sit down and have dinner with uh, Eric and uh, and Larry Cohen, a director that both Liam and I are a big fan of. Um, but And so we got a little bit of a taste of what it's like to spend some time with him, but I've certainly never worked with him in a, a acting capacity. 
how did he get on board the project? Uh, was, it, was that also through Felissa Rose in this case? Uh, it was because uh, he's represented by the same uh, organization that she is. Right. So and, and, she, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, what, because, because of his reputation, because of his history uh, as an actor, um, what, what, <laughs> sorry, I just want to make sure I, I, I word this correctly. Was it? You've obviously worked for a very long time. You've worked with a lot of big names. Uh, certainly, I imagine the intimidation factor is long gone for 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 someone like you. But was there a sense of excitement about having someone like Eric Roberts in the film? Two time Golden Globe, one time Academy Award nominee. Yeah. You got your booty. I was mm. thrilled to death to be able to work with the guy. I couldn't wait to get my hands on him. <laughs> now, having said that, I was also scared to shit too. Because you don't know what personality you're going to get. You can get somebody cooperative, or you can get a real pain in the ass. Um, and when I got to the set the first day, I was in, in the production office doing something, and somebody came in and said, uh, Eric's in the dressing room, and he'd like to see you. And I said, okay, go right in. I'll tell him I'll be right there. And so I just took a couple of deep breaths, and um, <laughs> I said, all right, let's go in and talk. So I walk in. The first thing he does, he picks up a bowl of fruit. He goes, hey, you want some breakfast? There's too much food here. And I, I said, uh, no, thanks, though. And he says, great, great. So um, uh, my name's Eric, and uh, I said, and you're John? I said, yeah. And so we talked a while and talked a little bit about the shoot. And um, when I walked out, I thought, this is going to be monumentally fun. I just can't <laughs> wait. This is going to be so cool. Because the guy relaxed me and everybody on the set. He was very kind to everybody. Um, he would clown around the, the, the poor first AC. He put the <laughs> clapper out, and when he wasn't looking, Eric would stick his finger in so I couldn't close it. <laughs> He was just having a good time, you know. But he he was very respectful, um, uh, you know, working with me in that, you know, before he'd take it, he'd say, hey, boss. i say, yeah, Eric. He goes, in this thing, are we doing this and this? I said, yeah. He goes, how about if I did that? I said, I think that's great. Let's try it. And we would do it, and he'd look and say, what do you think? I said, I think it's good. Uh, one day he came in, and he was unshaven because he was doing another shoot. And he goes, um, do you want me to shave? I can shave. I said, you know what? This scene, I think you can get away with it because it's like you've been working all night and blah, blah, blah. He goes, you're okay with that? I said, absolutely. So he was happy about that. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, we uh, we shot part of the film in my house, so we would have lunches in the backyard and we, we would talk. And I got to know his mind, which this guy's really bright. And sure. I love bright people. He's really a smart man. It's not just he's a good actor, you know, he's got good looks, the girl's all fondle all over him but he's really a bright guy i mean and that that was to me more exciting than working with him is to talk to somebody intelligent i love doing that sorry liam do you have something that you'd like to ask yeah well <clears throat> i was just going to ask about um specifically his performance in the film you know uh Beverly Randolph brings a very sort of uh, all-American mom. You know, you sort of mentioned her voice and whatever. Um, and Eric Roberts is the patriarch of this cannibal family is also like very relaxed. You know, he sort of has that very relaxed Eric Roberts feel, which is also kind of unsettling in his charm. And I just wanted to, to hear a little bit about like that specific performance and how you see him. I mean, it sounds like you're working on his backstory as well. Uh, so you don't have to give any of that away. But just a little idea of like, you know, his, the, your direction for him in this character, which is which is interesting, him being um, the leader of a murderous family, but just a relaxed, chill guy. <laughs> You know, it's a good point, um, because when I went to do this, Liam, um, 
I thought about the character and I said, what would a brain surgeon's personality be? And, and I've been with enough doctors to realize there's not a, a, a big personality with most doctors. They're, they're kind of clinical and, and very calm in their approach because they can't get emotionally involved in a patient mm. because then they can't do their job because then they start crying if they're cutting into somebody and feeling mm. like they're hurting them or something. So they tend to devoid themselves of emotions in order to do their job properly and, and make medical decisions that are for the benefit of the patient and not from an emotional standpoint. So for Eric's role, I thought if I let him be the brain surgeon, which he was, and a very calm uh, father, he would raise kids in the proper manner, good old cannibal manner, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, he encouraged his son in the business end, and he was teaching his daughters. So there was a, a calmness that, you know, permeated uh, his character that I felt was appropriate. Yeah, it 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 enhances the rest of the family. I mean, the um you know, Nicole and Scott are also somewhat proper, but they have their sides when they're alone that are very sharp edges, and it's just really interesting that with the parents, no matter what they're doing that they don't have the sharp edges, you know, and that Eric Roberts can be, you know, talking about whatever is going on in the film but he has this vibe that's very much like this is all fine everything that's happening is fine (laughs) yeah it's just it's business as usual yeah it's really sweet because when i gave him the book secrets to to have in in the um in the bed with beverly he goes wait a minute you wrote this i said yeah he goes shameless i said i know it's shameless promotion (laughs) yep that sounds like what he would say yeah 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 (laughs) But he started reading. Goes, what do you want me to say about it? So I wrote the line. He goes, okay, more shameless. I said, yeah, just keep reading. <laughs> <laughs> I will admit, I did notice that in the movie, and I, I didn't think shameless. Uh, you know, you got to do what you got to do. But that does transition into uh, one of my final questions here, which is that I was reading an interview with you uh, online where it mentions a book that you have that you've been working on called "When the Rain Stops," and it sounded like it was something that was extremely personal to you. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that and when people might be able to, to check that out. Boy, you just, uh, you just did a mouthful there. Um, it's a very personal story, and, I, and I'll be very brief because I don't want to get too far into it. It'll take too much time. But sure. my dad died 10 days after my third birthday. We were living in a, in a ghetto in Jersey City, and my mom was pregnant with a fourth kid, who, which she miscarried at the funeral. So we had no visible means of support. My father died, and I hated God. I, I spit on everything. I became a very out of control, very angry kid. And it took me in some really ugly directions all the way up to and including 10th grade, where I attempted to, to kill myself. So I wrote this chronology, my biography basically, to try to help people understand that depression is actually a place that's safe for them, and they need to learn how to get out of that. Depression becomes such a, 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 a safe haven that you can't just say, I'm going to be happy. And when something happens, you tend to go back into what you feel is familiar and safe, which is the depression. So I'm trying to use that as an example to help people get out of that mode and see that if you really want to, you can be anyone you want to be. And believe me, when I came into this business, everyone said, you're never going to make it. And I said, why not? And said, A, you're not Jewish. B, you don't have any contacts in the film industry. And C, nobody in your family knows anybody. I said, I like a challenge. And that's where it all began. You know, I just, uh, I, I wanted to do film. 
and I knew I didn't have any contacts, but I wasn't going to let that deter me because I figured somebody has to work with all the famous people. Why not me? I just have to find the path to get there. Um, so that that's uh, as far as when it's going to go. My my team right now is exploring literary agents and uh, sure. possible publishers. I don't want to self-publish this. It's too important of a book for me. Right, right, uh, of course. So, yeah. The one I'm really looking at right now is Christmas Voices. That's got me excited beyond words. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Sure. It, the story uh, started with um, my wife and I are uh, considered one of the world-leading builders in, in the scale model that we do of Charles Dickens Village Pieces Department 56. Mm-hmm. started with a couple of pieces under the Christmas tree, and now it's grown to five and a half feet wide, 22 and a half feet long, sitting on a three-foot <laughs> platform. And we've done hand-carved mountains. I, I created all the lighting effects. We've got trains. We've got, it's just a beautiful... If you go on uh, Facebook and go Christmas Voices, you can see all the pictures of, of the village. Mm-hmm. So... I decided to write this story about it, and it became a cross between It's a Wonderful Life and A Christmas Carol uh, in a modern-day setting. And everyone who's read it has, has responded so well, saying, we need a story like this. We need something of hope. We need to show what's valuable in life nowadays. We've lost our moral compass, and this guy has to redeem himself uh, through the story. And so I wrote the novel, and then I wrote the screenplay, and I have some interest in the screenplay right now, which I'm... Uh, really excited about, uh, and I hope I, I can shoot that as my next project. Oh, that's wonderful. Wrapping up here, and uh, Liam, do you want to jump in with anything before I, I wrap up uh, here? No, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, John, b- both of those projects sound really amazing. I Honestly, what I think anyone listening to this will take away is that you are a true renaissance man. It seems like you have all of these interests, your fingers in so many different areas, not just the film, but obviously what you were just referring to and, and, and writing as well. Um, if people want to keep up on what you're currently doing or what you might be doing on the future, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, there's a, a John P. Callis official on Facebook. That's one way. Uh, we're rebuilding my website. Uh, they can go look on it now. It's johncallis.com. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's going to be um, taken down hopefully within the next couple weeks, and the new one's going to go up. Um, that's certainly one way they can do it. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. Um, very open. I mean, people have reached out to me on Facebook and said, hey, uh, I'm about to start this project. I'm kind of a little nervous. Uh, you got any guidance? And I said, here's my number. Call me. And I'd spend a half hour on the phone just talking it through with them so that they felt comfortable with what they were doing. So, I, yeah, they, they can reach out. Well, that, that, that sounds wonderful. And for people who want to check out No Solicitors, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, well, you can go to Amazon, Walmart, Target, Barnes & Noble, uh, pretty much any outlet store. Absolutely. Uh, but Amazon's a pretty good place to go. And if you are a fan of horror, dark uh, humor, sorry, <clears throat> if you're a fan of horror, if you're a fan of dark humor, uh, and if you're a fan of gore, yeah, you're going to enjoy yourself with no solicitors uh, available now. Uh, all-star cast of recognizable faces if you are a fan of horror films. John, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today about your life work and, of course, Eric Roberts. We really do appreciate it. It's my pleasure, and I cannot tell you how much I've enjoyed this interview. It's been fun. I really, I, you know what? We really, I love hearing that. And John, honestly, uh, I hope I can talk to you again at some point. You, your career, I could, <laughs> I could have delved into everything you mentioned in great detail and bore everybody <laughs> except for myself, including you. Uh, but, but I mean, you've, you've, I, I, I hope to see so much more of your work, and you've done so much interesting stuff already. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what you do next. 
Well, I appreciate that. And if you ever want to call, we can have a, a chat, Doug, off, offline and um, just go through some of that. I just would like to leave you with one thought. Um, mm-hmm. you, you know the TriStar logo with the horse coming out of the cloud? I do. That, that's something I created. John, you've made your mark many times over, but uh, now I will never be able to see that without thinking of you. And you know what? That's just a little gift that you've given us here in this interview. <laughs> well, it's gone down in film history, so I'm, I'm proud to be part of our history anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. John, again, thank you so much, and, uh, and we'll, we'll hopefully talk to you very soon. that was episode number 75 of Eric Roberts is the fucking man. I want to give a massive thanks, even though he's not with us at the moment, to John Callis for taking the time to talk about his life and career. Again, fascinating career. I, I, I think I mentioned on the interview that uh, that I could talk about a lot of those things all day, especially like the early days of music videos. I find that material so interesting, Liam. I know you don't care because you don't like music, but for me, you know, that was a golden age of creativity. I mean, I'd like to hear about how much Coke Adam Ant was on. That sounds interesting. Liam, what's your favorite early MTV music video? That's actually a pretty good question. It's hard for me not to just immediately go to everything Michael Jackson did. Because when sure. I think about my youth, that was those are the videos that I could see without actually having MTV. Because um, they would play on other things. But... Um, in retrospect, I don't know, maybe, uh, 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 actually, you know what one I find totally ridiculous is the Dexy's Midnight Runners, John, mm. just cause it's like, why are they dressed that way? And doesn't it chafe their nipples? That's something I've always been confused by, but you know, <laughs> to keep, to keep some of my punk cred, also say the Chromax video is pretty good. Okay, Liam. And let's not forget, of course, Thomas Dolby's, she blinded me with science, Liam. What do you think about that one? Uh, I science never seen it. Are you fucking? I like, kidding I like me? that song though. That's a good song. Wait, you know the song, but you've never seen the video before. Yeah, why would I? I don't Philistine. know. Philistine. Why would I know the video? I don't understand. It was like one of the most popular videos in the 1980s. Not to mention, it was on pop up video like a million goddamn times. Remember pop up video, Liam? Uh, I would never in my life subject myself to the horror show that is pop up video. That's oh, actually wow. that's actually torture. What you're describing right now is actual torture. What's torture about some fun facts about legendary music videos? No, 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 no thank you. Liam, I almost feel so disgusted that I don't want to ask you about all the latest, greatest stuff coming up on Cinepunks.com. But I will anyway, Liam. What's going on with Cinepunks? Uh, well, we actually – this is probably not re- relevant for everyone, but – if you are not too far from the Lehigh Valley area, we're um, co-presenting a screening. What? Of, yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, in the 
in the area, there's a, a place called Arts Quest in Bethlehem, PA, and they do a lot of stuff there, concerts and uh, whatever, but they have a cinema called Frank, Frank – sorry, let me get the name right – Frank Banco Alehouse Cinema, which is a <laughs> not great name for a place that you want people <laughs> to reference regularly. Luckily, I don't think anyone from the theater probably listens to this podcast. What? But the point is, is that, uh, as you know, the American Genre Film Archive, Archive uh, has – been uh restoring some classic shaw brothers films right and they're releasing them for people to screen at their theaters so saturday i'm just trying to man this poster is very small uh on saturday may 26th so that's next saturday 9 45 p.m uh the first of the series is king boxer king boxer uh also known as uh five fingers of death Mm -hmm. and uh uh, also, uh, the sound from that movie was ripped off from by Kill Bill. Clint. Not ripped off. He did give credit to it. Yeah, whatever. Point being, we're terrible. Point is, is that that's coming up. It's at Frank Banco Alehouse. I'm going to be doing an introduction and maybe a Q and A afterwards. I haven't quite figured it out. And then there's more coming up. Like next month is Come Drink with Me, and there's some more after that. I mean, these are some early Shaw Brothers productions. I mean, I love those movies. I've seen King Boxer many times and Come Drink With Me. Uh, yeah, if you should go out of your way to check them out. And that explains, Liam, why you were so interested in reading up on the Shaw Brothers history recently. Oh, yeah. So I um, basically, I want to go into that very well researched. Mm-hmm. So I will say, if any of our listeners have good resources on the Shaw Brothers, I had a few good recommendations, but I'm still trying to read up, especially on some of the more specific movies. So you want people to to send stuff to you? If you know of something, especially art, I have a couple good books, and I don't know that I want to just read like full books per se, because that could be a lot of my time. Well, but I will say, like, if if someone has some good essays, reviews, especially like histories, like I don't want to know that someone thinks King Boxer is sick. Sure. But if someone has like a oh this fact about it or something like that, that'd be pretty cool. Well, usually I would recommend the movie commentaries of Bay Logan, but it turns out he was a disgusting pervert the whole time. <laughs> I legitimately don't know who that is. So Bay cool. Logan does. I mean, I almost hate to say it now, the best martial arts commentaries for movies. Uh, no one is as good. Rick Myers is probably another big name in uh, martial arts movie commentaries, but I always thought his were, were kind of riddled with errors. Bay Logan had a encyclopedic knowledge of both Golden Harvest and Shaw Brothers, and uh, his commentary with the RZA on um, the uh, 36 Chamber of Shaolin is amazing and really worthwhile checking out. But he's done for a number of different, uh, different Shaw Brothers movies. However, apparently he was feeding women to Harvey Weinstein, so we shall never talk about him again. Jesus. Okay. I know. I know. It destroyed me because he also had started a podcast semi recently that I was a big fan of because I'm a I'm a bit of a martial arts movie junkie. Liam. I didn't know that was something that you were so stoked about. Oh, I love Shaw Brothers movies. Boy, you don't you sure don't do. you don't talk about it very much. It's not really uh something we, we get into. Well, not a lot of martial arts movies featured here. <laughs> Eric Roberts is the fucking man. Nope, just best of the best. That's all you get. That's all you get, and of course DOA. Liam where can people find you on the internet? Um, Cinepunks.com, at Cinepunks on Twitter. Do it! Follow Liam! And, of course, at Liam Rules on Twitter. Uh, wait, you did say that, didn't you? <laughs> no, I didn't. I was trying to avoid it. <laughs> Liam Rules on Twitter. Uh, you can, of course, find me on Twitter, at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E. 
E-Y. You can find my other podcast over at nobudgetpodcast.com. It's called No Budget Nightmares. I do it with Mo Porn. We talk about micro-budget and ultra-low-budget movies. I also do some occasional columnage over at cinepunks.com. We are uh, currently going over the uh, filmography of Pier Paolo Pasolini, uh, so you can check out those articles on uh, Cinepunks. Why don't you check that out right now? And, of course, we should direct people over to johncallis.com where you can find out about uh, the life and work of John Callis who we talked to today. Again, he has a fascinating history in the movie business. He talked about it uh, during our interview, but there's so much more to cover. I actually uh, might take advantage of his suggestion that I maybe talk to him privately and, uh, and pick his brain a little bit. I just, I, I just find so much of that material interesting. And, of course, you can find out more about Eric Roberts as the fucking man at E-R-I-T-F-M on Twitter. You can go to ericrobertsistheman.com if you want to subscribe via iTunes or whatever is your bag. You can also do a search for Eric Roberts is the man on Facebook and follow us on there as well. Why don't you make a recommendation of an Eric Roberts movie or TV project for us to cover? But with that said, it's time for us to close up the Eric Roberts bag for another week. We shall be back soon with another Eric Roberts classic. Good night, everybody. Good night. Eric Roberts is the fucking man. Eric Roberts is the fucking man. Eric Roberts is the fucking man. If there's anything that you can do, Eric Roberts fucking can.